0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning. It's good to see you. It is dark in here, so I have no idea if there's five of you or 50 of you out there. I can't see. Uh, man, it's good to be here uh, with you. Uh, thank you for uh, this morning uh, and your care and love for our family. We we appreciate that. Um, yeah, and just uh, I would say this morning with more of an acoustic set in worship, um, everyone didn't quit. We wanted to do that. Uh, it's a joy uh, to be able to just have the guitar and our voices. It demands that we sing together and hear each other as the people of God. So, uh, man, there's some times that I feel like that's just a great thing to do. And my heart is stirred by uh, just hearing us declare the goodness of who God is uh, together, Other instruments, and I believe drums are of God, uh, but sometimes it is fun to just sing together. So, well, let's read the text. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Not a very long text today, um, but an amazing one. It says, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to propitiate for the people's sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you draw near to us in this. Uh, we need you. Do deep work in our hearts. Uh, Lord, would you move us beyond uh, hearing these words, nodding at them, agreeing cognitively over them, and would you place them in the deep right recesses of our heart? May we feel them. Uh, may we know them to be true. May we rejoice in them, and um, even in times through tears, remember them. We ask that in your name. Be glorified today. We love you. Amen. So, uh I turned 40 in February. Yeah. A lot of wow. 40. Man, when I was little, I thought 40 was old. Um, It is. Super loved. Uh, I don't know if you're this way, but I still think of myself and my brain as I'm kind of stuck at 27, forever young. Uh, Not intellectually or emotionally, I hope. Uh, But I just think of myself as a 27-year-old, and I'm assuming when I turn 40, like, that's going to have to shift. I'm going to have to say I'm, like, 33 in my mind. But um, so far, the lead up to 40 uh, has not bothered me nearly as bad as the lead up to 30. That one jacked with my head, especially my 29th birthday and and, and really that whole uh, year, because I started asking questions as 30 approached, uh, like, what changes now? what's going to be different for me at that time? It was, do I need to take out my gauged earrings? Am I too old for this? I wore them for another four or five years, so I answered no. Uh, Do I need to chop the the faux hawk mullet thing off? Am I too old to pull off uh, stylish uh, hairdos? I think I kept it a little while. Uh, And do I need to give up on adventures? Uh, I was not only turning 30, but I was 30 to 40 pounds overweight Uh, So were adventurous days and adventurous things just beyond me? And there's just like a lot of nagging questions like what is over for me now? Uh, What has passed me uh, by? Uh, What has the window of opportunity shut on for me? And while you may think uh, you are kind of dramatic, that was going to be 30, not 90, fair enough. But the reality is it still messed with me. A lot and way more than I expected. There was this anxiety on a deep level uh, that just kind of kept telling me that part of my life had just ended. Uh, that, that glory years or fun days or other things were beyond and, and I was just going to become old and all this other stuff. And uh, what is that? What was I experiencing in uh, that moment? And if you said midlife crisis, no, maybe not. But uh, it was a fear of death. It was a fear of death knocking at the door and my slavery to it. And we can easily think that a fear of death is only an overt fear of actually physically dying. Like a worry-prone pr- w- uh, worry person who won't do certain things because they're afraid they may get hurt. Or a hypochondriac who always thinks that the end is uh, near. We normally think of those as a fear of death. But that's kind of an oversimplification for what the fear of death is. Um, and, and further, our world has learned to kind of avoid and not think about that type of fear. Because we live in this kind of denial of death and, and denial of the fact that it's actually coming for us. We kind of stick our head in the sands and believe as if it's not real. We think about a lot of other things and we only think about death really if, if tragedy comes our way, uh, if a funeral must be attended or maybe a health diagnosis scares us or someone near to us. That's about the only time that we think of death. And I thought about this a little bit. What's what's part of the reason that COVID and the pandemic area bugs so many people? Not the only, but one of the big reasons. And yes, it's people dying and things like that. But in the pandemic, when it came, all of a sudden we were forced to look at death when we're really used to not having to. Uh, the uh, reality is that many people saw people that they know die and started out of thinking about the, pros- the proposition of them actually dying. And, and no one liked it. It shakes our foundation when we start thinking about us physically dying. While while thinking of physical death isn't the only way that we experience physical uh, uh, fear of death, the more subtle and universal and regular ways, the way I kind of talked about leading into my 30s. It comes when we begin to wonder things like, is it too late to go to college and get a degree? Is it uh, too late to make a meaningful career? Is it too late to uh, to climb a corporate ladder, or get to a certain level to where I can have a salary that, that feels a little bit more comfortable? Is it too late to start saving for retirement? Is it too late to start a business, to start a, a church? Is it too late to get in shape, to have a hobby, to have an adventure? And then the, the more painful ones, I don't want to throw out flippantly the, the deeper scars. Is it too late to get married? Is it too late to find someone? Is it too late to have kids? I thought I didn't want more kids, is it too late to have another kid? Is it too late to become a good father? Is it too late to be a present mother? Is it too late for my marriage to be happy? Just is it too late? And with those questions of is it too late, then comes the question, do I need to mourn that it's too late? Uh, This type of fear of death tells us that our joy and our happiness is now restricted and that somehow our capacity for a full life, or peace, or um, meaning is somehow restricted or limited, and ultimately, that we've missed out, and there's a level of contentment that we're just never gonna see again, because a window is closing. If you're wondering, well, how, man, how are those a form of fear of death? Well, The only thing that creates those types of fears is the realization that a window is going to be closing for us at some point. If we lived forever and our bodies did not break down as they do, nobody would have this mindset, right? If we didn't die, nobody would be asking, hey, can I still have kids? Can I still have a career? Can I still do this stuff? Because you'd have an unlimited runway to be able to do all those things. It's only because windows close that we get scared. And since our bodies break down and since things end, the fear of death haunts us, all of us. And this type of fear of death is a cruel slave master who inflicts deep wounds and consistent wounds and regular wounds. Maybe, maybe the questions that we're asking are a little bit different, but it wounds us all. No matter what type of fear of death we're talking about or may have, the text deals with kind of all of them in the text. And at center stage, uh, the, the author wants to press this forward. And, and spoiler alert, it tells us, that King Jesus kills the slave master. The better Adam kills the curse of Adam through his death. Just think of that. We hope to be born and live a full life. He was born just to die to free us. This is a beautiful thing. While certain elements of Jesus is better, maybe hard to kind of connect to or relate to, Uh, for instance, Jesus being better than the angels. You might, cool. I don't know what to do with that. Uh, Jesus being the better hope that deals a death blow to death, all of us can connect to. There's no one that there isn't a beautiful hope found in the middle of that, and that's why this text is just so encouraging. Now, I'll back up for just a moment and remind us of the context of the book. Hebrews was written to a group of people who were being persecuted for their faith. We don't know precisely uh, the the very first original audience, and we don't know exactly the ins and outs of all of their forms of of persecution. So we're kind of connecting some dots, but we understand that there would have been a social nature to their persecution. There would have been uh, friendships and relationships and things that were cut off because of their faith. There was an economic nature to it, meaning it affected their finances, their ability to, uh, to, to do things in commerce, to, uh, to feed their family, and there would be a physical component to it as well. Some were being beaten, thrown in prison, and dying for their faith. No matter what the kind was, their faith was putting real pressure on their lives. And this pressure was causing them to think of walking away from Jesus. They're going, this hurts. This is hard. If we walk away from him, would things be easier? And they're debating going back to what is called the Old Covenant, to the laws and the sacrificial system that we see uh, in the Old Testament, specifically uh, the Torah. And they must have thought, well, you know, doing that stuff feels more manageable and more safe to us. But in today's text, the author wants to show us this beautiful reality. There is no safer place to be than in the grace of the one who's killed death. You can search Everywhere. In his hands, the hands of the deliverer, the one who delivers us eternally, is the best place you can be. Will you have pain here? Yes. Is Jesus the best place to be? Still yes. Before digging into the details of the text, I want to acknowledge this tension that I thought about just while while sitting in my office. There are certain concepts in our faith that require a lot of faith to actually believe. We can nod our heads at them, but to actually believe them and live like we believe them, it, it, it's really hard. And concepts that maybe leave us kind of looking at each other and be like, uh, do, we, uh, do we believe that? Is that, did he really, like can we actually really think that he's going to do that? And in certain things that as well they make us feel crazy when other People know that we believe them also. In this text, the idea of the death of death is one of them. It's a concept that will seem insane to those whose hope is not in Jesus. And it will feel insane at times to live your life as if this is really true. What I want to challenge you with is to consider what would it look like and what would it feel like to live in a way that actually believes this. Because that's what Jesus is inviting us into. If you believe in him, he invites you to walk out a life that is not floored by a fear of death anymore. He wants to walk you out of that. And he invites you to step out of being floored over a fear of wrath. Because whether you claim atheism or not, you understand that there is a creator. Romans says that creation screams that he is real. And that makes us wonder at times, where do I stand with this God? If you process that, Jesus, the better David, slays the biggest giants we have. That's what this text wants to tell you. King David destroyed Goliath with a stone out of a sling that came from a river while King Jesus destroys death and the penalty for our sin with his blood that flows like a river. You're not invited to live a life that is restricted by Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. You're not invited to have something good taken from you. You're not invited to have your ultimate happiness squashed you're invited to walk with the victorious warrior king Christ who won a great battle he created all things sustains all things reigns over all things and he'll restore all things this is what you and i are invited to the enemy and the cultural pressure leaves a lot of us just kind of feeling on the ropes right now as if we're the weak ones we're the crazy ones What's the popular saying? We're the wrong side of history ones. We're the foolish ones. We're the ones that have no clue and, and no hope. And yet this text stands over humanity's greatest problems and it declares to the hearts of those who believe, look at what the Lord has done. Look at what he has won. Right now we can see partly, we get shadows and we get bits and the kingdom of God breaks in in portion, but one day we will see it fully and This text is an invitation to throw the full weight of your belief into him today. Don't hold anything back. Lean all the way in. You don't have to be a fear of death anymore because King Jesus has destroyed that slave master. As we look back at the text, it starts with a reminder of what he has said last week. Christ came to share in our humanity. He was fully flesh and blood. Christ uh, wasn't some ghost floating around with a with a, with a costume. Uh, uh, of human likeness, Christ lowered himself to the place of the created order. He put on flesh and became flesh. The author notes that this means that he partook in the same things that we do, the full human experience. Christ experienced. Nothing was lost on him. There's nothing that he can't connect to. This is what we celebrate on uh, Christmas in the incarnation, which literally means in flesh. He came in the flesh. He became like us to save us. If you ever get confused on why orthodox Christianity pushes so hard and it's a mountain to die upon that Jesus came in the flesh, well, it's simple why. Christ had to become human to stand in the place of humans. He could not represent us if he did not become one of us. That's why we'll never let it go. And those who say, no, he wasn't really flesh, he didn't really do all that, We're, no. No, our, our hope is in him because he became flesh to stand in our place. In order to undo what was broken by the first Adam in the garden long ago, Christ became as Adam. He couldn't mail it in or do the flesh thing halfway And again, then we get the reason. The first giant that Jesus came to take down in the text, it says he partook in the same things so that through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. See, this text interlocks two concepts, death with the devil. And part of the outcome of the devil's work is the fear of death. And this leads us to an interesting spot because Christians for a long time have been really confused with what do we do with the, the devil? W- what exactly do we do with him? How do we treat him in our everyday lives? There's some that swing one way and, and they kind of believe um, that the devil deserves the blame for everything that they don't like in the world. They're looking for the devil around every corner and every closet and every shadowy area. That's too far. But others swing the opposite way and they trivialize the devil into this fictitious character. And they're blind to his existence and his plans and his desires for the world. Those errors we see most often are becoming too afraid of the devil or not becoming afraid at all or cognizant of his influence. The text says that Satan has the power of death. This doesn't mean he looks at you and snap and you die. Satan has the power of death in that he influences what causes death. Death is the result of rebellion against God. is the penalty for sin. God warned about this in Genesis. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Death was the penalty for sin. It still is. What we learn from the scripture is that Satan does anything he possibly can to get humanity to sin against God. And he does this by perverting the character of God and the gospel of God and the desire of God. The text says that he's a liar. He is a deceiver. He's a destroyer, an attempter prowling around, looking for anyone he can devour, trying to twist the reality in the eyes of humankind so that we will rebel against God and continue in our rebellion through sin. This is what he does. This is what he wants. Let me change how they see him so they will not believe in him and act against him. This means the only way to defeat death is to defeat sin, though. To try and deal with the penalty without dealing with the cause, would be pointless. And that's why Jesus died, to, pay, to bear the sin himself, to take it in our place. And by bearing it, he defeated the devil in the power of death. This means death is no longer a threat to those who are in Christ. Yes, we will still physically die unless Christ returns in our lifetime, but the fear of death doesn't master us now because we know we will live again in Christ with a beautiful inheritance that is ours. Yes, things hurt. Yes, Death comes, and yes, death is not the end. This is the triumphant message of the text. Jesus' death sets us free. Again, the hope is to move that from cognitive understanding to a heart that actually lives as if that's true. To free us not only from sin, but also the very fear of death. This is what he did and why he came. Now, this should radically change our lives. Why? Because you can live bravely if that's true. because you know that death does not hold on to you eternally because Jesus has done something wonderful for you. This is an invitation not to be careless and risk your life all the time. But it is an invitation to live as if death isn't the end for you. Man, if we believe that. Let this truth of the Bible kind of land on your heart. You do not have to squeeze it all into 70-ish years. I mean, that should set some anxiety for you in your heart. Because if your faith is in Jesus, you have an eternity, not not a little window here. You don't have to live terrified or heartbroken because a window is closing. Believing, oh man, I've missed my time. I'll I'll, I'll never get, I'll I'll never have, I'll never get, I'll never reach. The scripture says this life is but a breath, a vapor, a blip on the radar. In the scope of eternity, and guys, this is hard for us to understand, especially in our younger years, this is nothing compared to what we have coming. There's this thing in us like, man, that's kind of far out there. No, that's biblical Christianity. This is nothing compared to what Jesus has won. Remember, the text says that Jesus died to bring many sons to glory. That was in the part that we looked at last week. He didn't just die to keep you from, from getting punished. Yes, that's a beautiful part, taking the wrath away from us, but he, decide, he died to secure for you and bring you into something better, the glory of God, without the power of death and sin, and without the lies of the enemy or the pain of a broken world. This is what he has done. What we may find is that too many believers are living in unbelief. Not from their mouth, but from their heart and the way they live. Too many believers live with what we'll call an experienced atheistic mindset. Again, what we talked about last week, what I mentioned just a second ago, the atheist worldview is that you're not special. You're just molecules. You're made in the image of nothing. You're just here for a little bit. You get 70-ish years. We're not headed anywhere in in some storyline of redemption. You're just molecules. You get a couple years, and that's all you get. So because of that, squeeze every drop out of the time you have because you have nothing else. Hear me, this mindset believes this life is as good as it gets, so you need to get it all. This is the pinnacle. What does this text tell us? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says for believers, this is as bad as it will ever get. Do you see the difference there? Their hope is in this. This is our worst day. Because the beauty of what Jesus has coming for us is much greater than anything that we will experience here. Romans eight eighteen, and then if we skip to 24 and 25, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth uh, comparing with the glory that is to, be to reveal, or is to be revealed to us. For in the hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for, he, for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what real belief looks like. We wait with patience even if we experience pain. Why? Because one day our worst day will be over and there will be no more pain. King Jesus has won something wonderful. This is what Romans 8 is sharing. The present suffering, the present pain, the fear of death, the experiencing of a broken self and a broken culture They're not worthy of comparing to the future glory that we have coming in Christ. Are the author of Hebrews or Paul and Romans saying that our pain doesn't matter? Right? Because isn't that the question? Oh, they're just telling me to suck it up and get over it. Absolutely not. He's not saying that your pain doesn't matter. They're saying that our pain is not comparable to our hope. If you try and weigh the things, which one's bigger, he's going, it's not even close, your hope so much bigger. And the Bible is urging us to see that what we have in Christ is amazing. He has stolen the fear of death from the enemy over us. He punked out the enemy and took the keys. Look at the words the author wants the original audience and us to believe. He says Jesus didn't come to help the angels. He came to help you. Christ came to free you from your greatest enemies. Do you believe that? Do you, in your heart, in the middle of whatever season you're in right now, believe that Jesus came to for you? And if you believe that, does your life and your navigation of current fear reflect that? The text says, repeating the theme three times now in the book, that Jesus became like us, He had to be made like his brothers, like humanity in every respect so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest for us, so that he may propitiate for the people's sins. We need to understand again what the high priest in the Old Testament did to understand this text. Ancient priests offered sacrifices. They would take animals and offer them as sacrifices on behalf of, of the people's sin in the Old Covenant. Remember the first sermon we talked about this? There was no chair in the priest's area. Why? Because their work was never done. Right? Over and over and over they sacrificed. Over and over and over they spilt the blood of animals for the sins of people. Why? Because we haven't been able to stop sinning. And those animals and the blood of those animals, they didn't cover future sins and all the other stuff. They were to atone for the things that you had already done. And because we kept doing sinful things, they had to keep killing animals. The priest takes something else, sacrifices it for the backdated sins, and Jesus does something different. Jesus came. He doesn't take a goat. He becomes the lamb. He offers himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He became both priest and sacrifice. That's like a lawyer representing you and then doing your prison sentence. Christ stood in the place of sinners and paid their penalties. So let's do a little imagining, right? Before the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, in the, in the times uh, of the old covenant belief and things like that, when a sacrifice for sins was given for the uh, people's sins by the priest, right? Man, you had a bad day. You had a bad year. Killed a bunch of goats. Okay, just chill out for a little bit. Okay, good. I, I imagine that Satan would think, ah, no worries, man. I'll get them tomorrow though. Yeah, that covered the other stuff tomorrow's a new day though. I I imagine that he would laugh and think these fools are like shooting fish in a barrel. Do you know how easy it is to twist what they think and make them turn on God? I'll lie to them tomorrow and they'll do the exact same thing all over again because this is what they do and then the wrath of God will be due to them all over again. The reign of death will still terrorize them. They'll be crazy in their fear. I'll move them around like little puppets Yeah, there was a sacrifice. No worries, man. Tomorrow I'll get them. They can't stop sinning, so I will keep winning. But then Jesus comes. Satan tempts him in every way he could think of. Jesus was tempted with power and control and comfort and everything we face. Everything you go through, every type of temptation, Jesus had all of those. And yet Jesus does not slip where we do. He never rebels against the Father. Then Christ dies on the cross, standing in our place for our sins. And Satan thinks again. I'll get the people tomorrow. Still like shooting fish in a barrel, no worries. But when they do sin, down the road and Satan laughs thinking I've restarted the cycle all over again wrath and death is due to them I'm going to terrorize them with fear Jesus says I paid for their sin on the cross they're clean I stood in their place and I will continue to stand in their place my blood has been spilled their blood is no longer on the table I've covered their old sins their current sins and their future sins they're forever clean you have no hold on them Their debt is paid. You can't call them children of wrath. You can call them sons and daughters of the Most High. They're not my enemies. They don't need a new sacrifice. They don't need a new atonement. They needed a perfect sacrifice. I gave it. You lost. This is what we hear. And because of that, he goes, and they're free now. Right? You don't get to start wrath for them over. You don't get to accuse them You don't get to tell them that all the windows are closing because I've given them an eternity with me. This is what the text means when it says that Jesus destroys the power of death. Yes, people still die, and yes, we still cry. But he took the power, the greatest weapon. He took away the devil's greatest weapon at the cross. Why do we sing death in his grave? Because he stole the keys. He emptied the cup of God's wrath. (laughs) I imagine Satan throwing the world's biggest temper tantrum when he realized what just happened. He's been robbed. He's lost. Sure, he's still going to cause some chaos here and now still going to stiffen his neck. He's still going to draw horrific things out of men and women. But his power eternally is gone. There's an end date. Christ destroyed it with his blood. He will do work for a while. And then one day he will be done. When the text says that Jesus propitiated for the people's sins, Yes, it's a big word. It's an odd word. I don't even know if it's a word that I say rightly. That may feel intimidating, but it means something pretty simple. It means to satisfy God's judgment. And Jesus, like a sponge, soaked it all up. The wrath of God for those in Christ is gone because he took it all. There isn't any left. Christ didn't take... Upon himself, only a little bit. It's all gone. Why did he say it is finished? Because the wrath of God is gone. God's justice was served. And now his wrath for the redeemed is spent. That's why the text is so powerful that says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's not figurative language. It's there's literally no animosity between you and the Father. It's gone. Jesus took it all, there's none left for those who believe. And since it's all gone, sin is defeated. And since power is defeated, and you are called beloved. In this, our greatest enemies have been taken down, they have been defeated. The future hope for those in Christ is glory. That's what you have coming. That is your inheritance. It is an eternal glory in Christ. See, this is the source that should cause us to worship. Jesus has accomplished something great. He's become our better and best hope Christ has won. Some of us hear that and think, you know, I get it. But it sure doesn't feel like we've won. My pain is profound. My anguish seems unceasing. And my sorrow is so deep that it feels impossible to say that we've won. It seems inconceivable to live in light of this future hope when I feel undone by my pain and my suffering now. To which the author says, remember, since Jesus was made fully human, Christ has suffered just like you have. He's been tempted just as like you have as well. He is able to help you to help those in pain and suffering and being tempted if they run to him and ask him for his help and his comfort friends Jesus knew what pain was like he was rejected by his own family I don't know do you guys have trauma in your own family because of your faith Jesus knew what that was like they called him crazy Jesus lived the single life he never tasted companionship Marriage, or having a child. He knew what it was like to not have someone to share the end of the day with or lay next to on a pillow. He knew what it was like. Christ knew what it was like to be misunderstood. He knew what it was like to have every word out of his mouth twisted and used against him. Christ knew what it was like to have people assume the worst of him. He knew what it was like to lose people to death and weep over it. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by some of his closest friends. To feel stabbed into the back and have the closest people do horrific things to you. He knows exactly what that's like. He knew what it's like to have friends walk away when you sit there going, man, we were so close for so long and you act like it didn't even matter and you're gone. He knew exactly what that's like. He knew what it was like to feel deserted, misunderstood, Jesus got hungry, sad, angry, frustrated, tired, worried. I assume his stomach growled, he got headaches and he stubbed his toe. The point is Christ knows your pain better than you think he does. There's so many times you don't know what I'm going through. He does. He does know what you're going through. The Bible doesn't tell you to suck it up or get it over or get over it when you hurt. And it offers you something better. It invites you to draw near to Jesus when you hurt. The text that we went over last week, so often our pain, we just can't reconcile. Why won't you end it? And the message of the word is, that's why I came. And it will end one day. He does care. And he proved it by putting on flesh, coming to die for sins that were not his own. And then he bids you, even in your pain, to draw near to him. All you who are heavy laden. Are you busted? Are you broken? Are you tired? Are you hurting? Would you say, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come on in. One day I'll end it, and now I know what it's like, and I invite you to come find rest with me. The urging today is to see the great victory that he has won for you. And hear me to figure out just a little bit more, what does it look like to live a life that acts like the battle's already been won? That's what we're trying to figure out. What does it look like to live as if the enemy has lost and to realize that in your pain, you don't have to run from Jesus anymore. You can run towards him. He knows what it's like. He cares. He'll receive you. He'll comfort you if you let him. And he'll build you up in hope if you believe in what he's done. What if we lived as if this life wasn't the end? That's the question. What if we lived in the hope that this life is just a breath and the inheritance is beautiful that we have coming for us? How brave could we be? How bold could we be? How generous could we be if we didn't believe that we had to get everything that we're ever going to get here? How missional would we be? How loving would we be? I pray that when the storms of life come our way, which they will. We're not into the prosperity gospel. It's not if you believe this that your pain will go away. It's one day it'll end. I pray that when the storms come and we start feeling the fear of death knocking at the door, that we would remember that the warrior King Jesus has already won. He has defeated our greatest enemies and that this is as bad as it will ever get. Does it mean that your pain doesn't hurt? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Your pain hurts a ton, but one day it'll be over. The reality is your future is incredibly bright. A son of the most high, a daughter of the most high. He will love you, never let you go, and there is glory waiting for you. Why do we sing we have this hope as an anchor for our soul? because the future hope is what takes us through the pain now. The Lord is asking us to remember it in the middle of the chaos. That's the hope. Jesus, you've done a great work. Help me live in light of it. Help me fight the fear that I fi- face because of it. Help me lean into you in the middle of the pain. Here you can come back up. That's our hope today. We're gonna take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26 says, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to sing a couple songs in worship and worship. If your faith is in Jesus, I invite you to come up and take. But as you're remembering the broken body and the blood of Jesus, his body has been crushed so that you don't have to, and his blood has been shed to atone for even the worst things that you try and hide. And as you come to the table, the hope is that you would believe in that, but that also you would remember what he has coming for you. His body and blood is what robbed the power of the enemy that we thank the Lord for what he's done today. I think that that is the, the play for us. But that we would also say, Lord, will you help me remember what you've done? Would you press deep into my soul the reality of what you've won? I, man, I have a hard time picturing eternity. I have a hard time living as if there is a, a real hope. Lord, would you help me see it? Would you help me experience it more? That's our hope for today. And I pray that you'd find tangible hope in that and that your heart would cry out in gratitude and worship. Your God has won something great for you. And I know that your pain is significant. One day it'll be over though. I pray that we'd find tangible hope in that. Father, would you draw near to us? Holy Spirit, our prayer has been the same all day and all week. Show us the reality of the hope that we have we confess we we don't always know what to do with that will you teach us to live in a way that our eyes are towards the horizon of what you've done teach us to trust you more teach teach us to believe in what you've done Lord for the ways the enemy has us convinced that you're trying to take away from us would you show us in a fresh way that is the opposite of what you have come to bring sons and daughters to glory to wipe away our sin, to take the wrath due to us, you have come to give us a great gift and we know that deeply defend us when the fear of death comes in small and meaningful ways may we be able to shout out at the enemy you don't even have the keys for that and may we lean into the Lord in our Help us, Lord. We need your help. We're not sure exactly how to do that. So we confess and ask for you. Draw us near. Holy Spirit, do your work. Would you press the hope of the gospel into the deep recesses of our heart? May gratitude overflow. Lord, would you bring deeper worship out of your people in light of what you've done? And may it be pleasing to you. We pray that in your name. We love you, Father. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?